The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 39, Bad Hegel Continued. Episodes 38 and 39 form an essential unit, separated only for time restraints and intellectual density. They should not be considered separate episodes. When we deny transcendence, not only do we come apart at the seams, but value itself is inverted. Plato's idealism identified being and value in transcendence. That which is most real is also most valuable, and the highest of values is the good itself, the Western God. In the logic of Hegel's position, reason is good, absolutely good, which is why his philosophy functions as a solution to the problem of evil. But reason is ever ascending, always becoming, and its self-actualization, the process itself, is the locus of value. All that contributes to reason's ascent is good only as means to that ascent. Ethics, on such a view, can only logically be consequentialist. Actions are good only insofar as they produce good consequences. Action, in an existence without being, can have no inherent value, only values in contribution to the process. We see, thus, the foundation for the ever-present contemporary and postmodern ethic of the end justifying the means, laid down for us in Hegel, as well as the privileging of the collective, the general, over the individual, the particular. Quoting from Hegel's Philosophy of History. A world historical individual is devoted to the one aim, regardless of all else. It is even possible that such men may treat other great, even sacred, interests inconsiderately. But so mighty a form must trample down many an innocent flower, crush to pieces many an object in its path. This may be called the cunning of reason, that it sets the passions to work for itself, while that which develops its existence through such impulsion pays the penalty and suffers loss. For it is phenomenal being that is so treated, and of this part is of no value. Part is positive and real. The particular is, for the most part, of too trifling value as compared with the general. Individuals are sacrificed and abandoned. The idea pays the penalty of determinate existence and of corruptibility, not from itself, 
but from the passions of individuals. We might tolerate the idea that individuals, their desires and the gratification of them, are thus sacrificed. And that as a general rule, individuals come under the category of means to an ulterior end. End quote. Again, as soon as Hegel's absolute, the center that cannot hold, loses its position, there is no universal highest value to serve as the end toward which lesser values serve as means, and any objective sense of value is destroyed. Value dissolves in an extreme relativism. This relativism of value was precisely what Kant sought to avoid in the deterministic materialism emerging from Enlightenment scientism, and that the absolute in Hegel's absolute idealism attempted to preserve for Hegel himself. Kant, by contrast, holds on to the ought of traditional, transcendental ethics, that actions can be right or wrong in themselves, in isolation from their consequences, through faith in a metaphysical, objective, moral order. For Kant, a lie is a deformation of being itself. It is a violation of the moral order of the universe. Truth, then, as a stable reality to which we conform ourselves, ceases to exist in the new order of Hegel, as truth, like all else, is relative to the movement of spirit. This Kantian ought, as a demand of being, is the very structure of ethics itself, I contend. The ethical appeal of consequentialist theories, you ought to do X in order to produce Y, is a derivative demand, piggybacking on the primacy of the transcendent ought. It is parasitical on transcendence, another structure of self-deception in the Hegelian arsenal. There is no moral force to the hypothetical imperative. If you want Y, then do X. This is a practical demand, not a moral one. Consequentialism can only be moral by smuggling in a hidden appeal to the transcendent ought, saying, in effect, you ought to want Y, therefore do X. Why, though, ought we to want Y? The only answer that preserves ethical import is the pre-existence ought, the order of transcendent being and value that imminence abandons. I see in Hegel, therefore, the seeds of the destruction of ethics itself, as it is precisely this transcendent ought that is denied, leaving only instrumentality, the effective means to chosen ends, as the empty shell of morality. Here, too, is an instance of how the meaning of terms in a Hegelian context radically diverges from traditional language use. 
for the Hegelian, ethics and morality logically collapse into the hypothetical imperative. There is no other meaning for ethics than the practical ought, the means to achieve an end. There is no right and wrong independent of the practical ends of a given collective. All value is relative, both of ends and means. So when a Kantian speaks of right action or moral action, what he means can be almost diametrically opposed to what an Hegelian means by those same terms. This ambiguity in meaning is used to great effect by Hegelians to muddy the waters in debate. The logic of immanence is inescapable. Once transcendence is destroyed, and Hegel's God's eye perspective is exposed as impossible, spirit, Hegel's unitary reason, is demoted to one value story among others, with no criterion for rank ordering. There is no central value, no value at all, per se, only values, collective ends, reflecting the practical goals of the multiplicity of competing collective centers, all in competition for dominance. As Foucault will point out, in a universe of pure eminence, there are only diverging ends and means in an existential battle for supremacy. And all that matters is power and dominance. There is no great revelation of the metaphysical nature of the world in this claim, or many others like it on our contemporary scene. This is not analysis, not discovery, but prescription, circular metaphysics. It is simply Hegel's logic rediscovering itself as pure eminence, as privileging the collective over the individual, and as substituting the doctrine of means and ends for morality. As Hegel's story, with its unity of spirit fragments, new collective rational centers form. And for each, its dialectical view is the highest good. Denying transcendence, then, is at all times a collective exercise in bad faith, as any highest good points to, claims transcendence at the practical level, even as it is denied. This sort of embrace of contradiction is not accidental, but of the essence of the dialectic. We will see it again and again in the post-Hegelians. Another essential feature is what I term Hegelian optimism. Part of the logic of spirit, of rationality, is that it ascends. That is, the change that is the dialectic is a nearly invariable upward progress. The new, thus, becomes in this logic the better. This article of faith is often veiled, and it takes differing forms and intensities. Nevertheless, it lies coiled in the heart of the dialectic, even as it fragments. 
When we combine this optimism with Hegelian collectivism and relativism, we get a retrospective contempt for that which precedes us. If our collective value is the end of history, then what led up to us is primitive, retrogressive, an embarrassment, and must be overcome. Aufgehoben. The Hegelian right sides with the dialectical thesis, holding on to existing categories of culture, state, race, etc. Just as in Plato's Republic, perfection and purity must be maintained at all costs when once they are attained. The right, that is, seeks a static perfection, an already achieved totality that must fend off all that is degenerate, to resist and suppress all that will degrade its perfection. This retrospective contempt is also the essence of progressivism. We moderns, the enlightened ones, have achieved a higher consciousness, a consciousness that supersedes all that came before us in the benighted past. That which is must be overcome in favor of what will be, the utopia of our higher vision. This is why, in the battles of imminence, the left sides inevitably with the antithesis, the other. That which is must be overcome to usher in the better, even, and perhaps especially, when we have no positive version of what that better entails. We know only that what is doesn't measure up, and we resent it as only those who know better can. I have recently come to understand this know better more clearly due to the incredibly perceptive work of James Lindsay. His New Discourses website and podcast is the only other place I have found that understands Hegel's importance on the contemporary scene as I do. I cannot recommend his work more highly to my listeners. His Hegel, Wokeness, and the Dialectical Faith of Leftism, also available on YouTube, is a tour de force. And while I do not agree with him on every point, his analysis is without peer. Lindsay makes the point that Hegelianism is a form of Gnostic religion. When I first heard this suggestion, I said, Of course, you're exactly right. Gnosticism was a religious movement that emphasized personal experience over revelation and tradition, advanced esoteric spiritual insight and knowledge. I've always thought of Hegel's philosophy as a version of Eastern pantheism, representing the invasion of an Eastern religious sentiment into Western thought. Like the self-deceptive structures with which Hegelian philosophy is rife, Gnosticism taught that our experience of the world is illusory, that the material world is evil, and that we require a special knowledge and insight to see through the false veil of our experience. There is an inherent notion of arrogant self-importance and superiority that pervades this attitude. Its touchstone is that retrospective contempt for what is, 
for the order and structure of the illusory world of the non-initiated through which they, and they alone, can see. Gnosticism, too, has a dualistic structure in terms of its moral view of the universe analogous to the self-other dialectic in post-Hegelian thought as it evolves. For Hegel, of course, the emphasis was on a higher unity of self and other, not on the antagonism. But, as things degrade in the post-Hegelian tradition, especially on the left, self becomes that which must be overcome, that which is evil, holding back progress, while other is that which drives the dialectic forward, to be privileged as good, as the means to whatever end is valued by that collective center. To summarize, then, bad Hegel is the value inversion of imminence denying transcendence, playing out in the following. 1. An emphasis on the collective over the individual. 2. A progressively radical relativism, as spirit, reason, loses its universal status as center. 3. A resulting fragmentation of reason into competing factions. 4. An embrace of contradiction. Alternatively stated, the denial of logic as limit to reason's pretensions. That is, a progressive loss of rationality constrained and limited by the real. 5. A retrospective contempt for what is and has been. 6. A morality of ends justifying whatever means are effective in bringing them forth and thereby. 7. The death of truth, morality, and the Western God. We shall see each of these themes playing out over the remainder of our series. I would like to close our discussion today with a quote from James Lindsay's amazing article, The Calamity of Scientific Gnosticism. As it sets us up for understanding the post-Hegelians we will be examining as we move forward with this series, those whom I will call the prescriptive Hegelians. Remember that Lindsay thinks of Hegel's philosophy as a form of Gnostic religion. Quote, Gnosticism is a perverted impulse toward progress. It turns progress upside down inverts it by reframing it away from the effort to prosper in the world as it is and toward remaking it into a world that it is not and cannot be. Gnosticism is the perversion, the inversion of epistemology, which is how we might go about knowing what we know and that we know it. Philosophically speaking, knowledge is a tricky matter. While theologies are content to assert an absolute truth in the deity, they also, when mature, insist that man's fallibility and limitation prevents him from knowing that truth as the deity would. In other words, while there may be some absolute truth, it is not man's lot to know it 
within the circles of this world. To capital K, no, would position us as gods ourselves. And so whispers the serpent in Genesis, which is out of accordance with the order of creation. God's mind is not our mind, and our minds are not equipped to fathom the ways of deity. Instead, we must be content to pursue or to love knowledge or wisdom, and, if theological, God, and to pursue it as best we may in humility and in recognition of our proneness to error. The Gnostic turns this upside down. Absolute knowledge is available and hidden from us by those who have ordered the world. Knowledge of the higher truth, that the garden is in fact a prison, sets us free of it, at which point we can reshape the world nearer to our heart's desires. Accordingly, knowledge of the absolute truth, gnosis, is the way to true freedom. End quote. The clarity of understanding in these words of an avowed atheist and left-leaning thinker is nothing short of astounding. It feels to me as though he is channeling the Christian atheist here. We must keep these words in mind as we continue our analysis of the Western implosion Hegel's influence has wreaked and continues to wreak. To my mind, James Lindsay ranks with Jordan Peterson among the most important voices on the contemporary scene. I thank God for both of them. Stay tuned, as having presented the good and the bad Hegel, we turn next time to the ugly, the prescriptive Hegelians. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.